It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Today it's going to be thick. It's going to be muggy. It's going to be humid. But we will have periods in the day where it's going to be a little dry. It's not going to be a washout today. So uh, it's just a little after 7 a.m. If you're getting up and getting started, don't know what you're going to do today. I want to throw out a couple of things. Uh, The American Hydrangea Society has their 26th annual garden tour, and that is in kind of the Roswell, Alpharetta, North Fulton area. Not sure if it's too late to get tickets, but you might want to go to AmericanHydrangeaSociety.org. Check that out. I think you pay for a membership, and that gets you tickets and some other opportunities with them throughout the year. But uh, my friend Norm Mitleider uh, telling me about that for sure. He will be located at one of the houses. So that is going to be today, rain or shine. If you just absolutely love hydrangeas, now is your time to enjoy those. And the Ball Ground Garden Club up in Cherokee County, where I am from, their 70th anniversary celebration. That's going to be today in the downtown Ball Ground area, right next to their city hall from 10 to 4. And yours truly will be headed up that way right after the show. I'm going to be hanging out with the Ball Ground Garden Club from about 10 to noon today, a festival, just a lot of really fun things going on. So that might be something fun to take the family to. So just a couple of ideas for you if you're ready to get out and about. This morning, someone who is already out and about and up early and joining us on the show. I welcome him back. Clint Waltz from the University of Georgia Turfgrass Specialist. Hey, Clint. Morning, Ashley. I am so glad you're here. We had a great conversation yesterday and some things we maybe wanted to share with folks. So I have some topics for you, but um, I thought of you when I talked to our friend Chris just a little while ago. He called from Conyers in the last hour, Clint. And uh, real quickly, just wanted to ask you, he had a septic tank issue. So, you know, the the Bermuda grass around the area was disrupted. But maybe someone else who has had some kind of disruption or damage done to their turf um, in some way. Now is a great time of year for him, for Bermuda anyways, to be able to sod or seed. But going the cheaper route, you know, seeding for Bermuda this time of year, give us some tips to make sure we're not wasting that money and we're pretty successful getting that seed to germinate. Sure. Uh, number one, site preparation. Mm. So doing doing a good job with site preparation, getting soil worked up. And if he's had his septic tank redone, um, I'm, I'm fairly certain the site has been tilled and worked <laughs> up and soil has been disturbed and it's loosened and, and those kind of things. But uh, getting it well loosened up, um, prepared, uh, smoothed back over, that type of thing um, would be would be number one. Uh, soil test and, and making sure our soil chemistry is good with our pH and, and uh, phosphorus and potassium. Um, but if he's wanting to get going, um, you know, get it down and we can handle some of that after the fact and, um, getting a good quality seed, um, it, uh, and, and follow the, the seeding recommendations on the bag, um, for, for it, uh, not all Bermuda grass seed, it, it can come either hold or unhold and okay. the seeding rate's going to be different based on which one it is. And, uh, so follow the bag and for this time of year and someone like him, uh, don't be afraid to maybe go a little bit heavier than the seeding rate uh, to get it up and going and filled in this summer and, and that type of thing. So 25, 50%, a little bit heavier on the seeding rate uh, won't hurt. It's, it's, seed aren't like pesticides and fertilizer where the seeding rate uh, or the application rate is absolutely 100% critical. Uh, this one you can kind of cheat a little bit and, and go a little higher. Um, so don't don't be afraid to do that in a situation where you got some bare ground and uh, – and you're trying to come back along with it and, and speed it up some. 
and hold or unhold, that's kind of, is that the way the seed is encapsulated, so to speak? Well, uh, most all of it's going to come what's called coated, uh-huh. um, which is different. Uh, uh, hold and unhold is a matter of how it actually comes out of the seed head itself okay. on, on the seed. So that's, that's truly biological uh, on it. So there is a way of removing the hull or husk around the seed, and then you just actually get the seed itself. So um, it, it's just part of the processing, and then it's it's all going to be coated. It's going to, and, and there's a various of coatings out there. Some of them actually have a little bit of a fungicide on them to help. Some of them may be coated with a little bit of lime. Some of them may be coated with a wetting agent. So all those are proprietary a little bit, and they're a little different. And you can't do anything about the the coating. They're all going to come with some kind of coating on them. But the hold versus unhold will make a difference in seeding rate uh, on them. And typically the unhold is going to be a higher seeding rate than the hold. Okay. Wow. Oh, thank you. I learned something new. So, yeah, coating is a totally different thing. Okay, great. So, yep. so I had you in mind because as gardeners, sometimes we can be a little impatient, right? And if something's beginning to happen to our lawn or to our tree or shrub, we think it's a result of something that has happened most recently, you know, just in the last couple of days, what if a varmint got to it or what if, you know, it was too much rain or too dry or whatever, but you and I were talking, we may be seeing some things, particularly the zoysia lawn is what you've encountered and been told mm-hmm. there on the research campus of the University of Georgia in Griffin. Um, some Something that we're seeing now in zoysia lawns, you know, coming out of dormancy, green up and all of that, but maybe what we're seeing now, a result of kind of the environmental conditions we had as far back as a couple of months ago. What what have you found to be the case with uh, zoysia lawn in particular? Yeah, right now I'm getting, here in the last week or two, I've gotten a number of phone calls and emails from county agents, um, from homeowners, and, and many of our landscape um, landscapers out there that uh, zoysia grasses are causing them to pull their hair out a little bit this spring as things are coming out. And um what what we're seeing is is zoysia grass is just kind of coming out and they're sitting there. Um, as, as I told one the other day, I said, from what I'm seeing, zoysia grasses have gotten out of first gear. They've kind of greened up, and we got some green grass out there, but they're not doing much. Or, or we got some areas that are still a lot of brown in them, and grasses are just sitting there. They're not doing an awful lot. And and what that goes back to, at least what I think, um, it goes back to what I've seen is, is some of the weather we had back in um, April and May. Wow. Um, yeah, we had that Easter freeze. Um, and then, oh, what was it? Somewhere it was about uh, the third week or so in April. We had another pretty significant cooling. Yes. Um, on it. Clint, did we lose you? Yeah, we we may work to get Clint back, but it's so funny to think about. You know, you really have to go back as gardeners and track those things when you have frosts. And all of that, you know, you're not necessarily going to see the impacts within the next few days or weeks. It could be as far as now, you know, a month and a half down the road. So we'll get Clint back to talk about that. I really wanted to reach out to Clint so that he could be able to talk about things that, you know, may be beyond the norm right now. Every season is different. Every year is different. And also we'll talk to Clint when he comes back about soil temperature, because if the soil temperature is not, you know, averaging right now where it usually is for this time of the year, that greatly impacts how quickly the grass is going to green up or how quickly, you know, your seed may germinate and all those kinds of things because the temperatures have to be just right. And every Saturday on the show, I share with you kind of the top three things to do in the landscape. And one of those, uh, if you were listening in the first hour, you heard it, be checking the lawn for circular dead brown spots. That could be brown patch. 
And so I'm certainly going to pick Clint's brain about that, help you get ahead of that, because that's something that can make you pull your hair out, too. So any of these diseases like that fairy ring or brown patch or something like that, the number one way to combat disease in your turf and in your lawn is making that lawn strong. That way it's able to choke out weeds. It's able to overcome disease and things like that. So correct fertilization, watering practices, that kind of thing, before you reach for the fungicides, before you really have to do post-damage control. So, Clint, we've got you back, going going yes. back to this idea of soil temperatures and what happened with those late freezes. Why is that slowing the process so much? Well, uh, it's a situation where soil, our soil temperature is going to dictate roots and root growth and root activity and, and that type of thing on our, on our plants. So those, those cooler soil temperatures, got them up, got them green, got them growing a little bit, but then slowing them down and just kind of more or less putting the brakes on things is, is what uh, those temperatures back in April and in May have gotten. So, so this is environmental. We obviously had no control over any of this. And you're, you're having these people and landscapers and homeowners call being like, what is with my zoysia? It's not looking as hardy as maybe one would expect. Obviously, our natural inclination, Clint, is so what can I do? How can I fix this? And what are you telling folks? Well, on that one is patience. Um, uh-huh. and, and that's what the majority, I, I, that's probably about 70% of there. There are two other situations that I've seen this spring that kind of keep reoccurring that aren't as much environmental. One is uh, there's a lot of black zoysia grass. And, and most of those areas are areas that where zoysia is kind of marginal anyway. It's got a little bit of shade mm-hmm. or it's areas that uh, water backs up. And we've gotten a tremendous amount of rot with rain that we got this past winter and, um, and, um, and that type of thing. So that's one that's environmental but it's not it's, we gotta on some of those you need to fix the the drainage issues and the other one and i get this one every spring ashley is that oh i got these large patches in my yard these brown patches and uh it's disease and sure enough you look at it it's got that disease look to it that, yeah. that but the disease happened in the fall of the year oh. and, and the zoysia grass is, yeah the disease happened in the fall the zoysia grass isn't going to get better over the winter so then you wind up seeing really the effects of it in the spring and, and uh, want to go out and do something other than it's like, well, no, the, the damage occurred back last fall. Um, and you just got to wait for it to grow out of it this, this spring and early summer. So if that's a disease, it, is that pathogen just living in the soil all winter as the grass is dormant? It's in the air. And, oh. Well, it's it, it probably occurred. Um, the, the actual active disease was probably actually occurring back last October, maybe even early November, even in the Atlanta area. Um, so it's, it's large patch. It's rhizoctonia is the organism and it's ubiquitous. It's, it's in the soil, it's in the air, the spores are out there um, on it, but it, it likely did its damage in, in the fall of the year when the grass is far less aggressive. And uh, you may have seen it occurring, but it didn't dawn on you. And then, like I said, it, the grass isn't going to get any better. It's not going to look better as, as through the wintertime. And then when it comes out, it's still showing the signs of, of that uh, of large patch that happened back last September, October, November. So if we're really dedicated to, you know, a, a very vigorous lawn, Clint, we've always said for years and years on this show, the best practice in getting ahead of this is creating a tough, strong grass that can almost you know, hold hold its own as far as trying to choke out weeds, trying to prevent disease and all of that. So, I mean, number one would be just really maintaining proper watering techniques and fertilization and all that mm-hmm. to at least try to prevent things from happening, right? Correct. That's actually good agronomics is a great base. So um, proper fertility, uh, proper irrigation, mowing at the right height uh, 
is is what we do now on established lawns. So you know it, that's that's where we are. If, if you've got an established lawn, do all the right things, and you can visit our website www.georgiaturf.com. And uh, we've got lawn care calendars for all of our major grass species that we we have here in the state of Georgia. So there's always your grass, Bermuda grass, centipede grass, St. Augustine, tall fescue. GeorgiaTurf.com. I have recommended those lawn care calendars for a long, long time. One page, print it out, put it in the garage, put it in the shed, and it's going to keep you on track, folks. January through December, what you need to do, when you need to do it. Um, let me ask you one quick question, Clint. You mentioned the the black on zoysia, you know, maybe like rotting, and that made me think of slime mold. Um, that occurs sometimes <laughs> in Bermuda and yeah. things like that. Uh, are we going to start seeing that now with all these wet conditions? What brings that on? Yeah, um, it's it's when we get a little bit of what and you know, uh, so, so we could be very much seeing slime mold pop up here in the next. The weather conditions, environmental conditions, are favorable for slime mold uh, with some of these pop up showers that we've been getting here lately. Um, these overnight showers, so the canopy is a little a uh, little more moist. And uh, you know, thing to remember about slime mold is it's non pathogenic. It's it's not going to hurt anything. And uh, just just brush it off or or kind of get down and look at it. And it's kind of a neat little organism if you look at it. Kind of silvery, it right? Perfectly. Yeah, a little silvery, and if you look at it real close, it just makes these perfect little um, um, spheres. Uh, the spores on them are just these nice little perfect spheres that I, I, I guess it takes a, a little bit of a turf nerd to, to really kind of appreciate <laughs> stuff like that. But, I think that's neat. I uh, mean, yeah, it's kind of pretty. Biology is <laughs> interesting. It is. All right, well, folks can uh, catch up with Clint or at least see some of the things we've discussed today, georgiaturf.com. Clint, I really appreciate you. Now go back to relaxing and kicking your feet up on a Saturday. This has been awesome. So my pleasure, and uh, absolutely, and we'll enjoy a little time down here at the beach. That's right. I love it. Why? So appreciate it. Always good to have you on. We're going to get back to calls, 404-872-0750. And coming up in less than 10 minutes, Walter Reeves joins us for Walter Wonders. You're listening to WSB. Scattered showers and storms likely today. Highs in the upper 80s today and tomorrow. 90% humidity. Oh, my goodness. Less chance tomorrow, just partly cloudy skies and into Monday as well. Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. The update on the weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. The top three things brought to you by me. So I do a little bit of research, things that are seasonal, things that are timely. Number one, you could be collecting seeds from foxglove stalks. Those are beautiful, tall flowers, cool little bell-like flowers. Scratch the soil around the plant, scatter the seed, cover it with a little bit of dirt. You don't have to plant them too deeply. Water and the seedlings that sprout this year bloom for you next year. Clint Waltz and I talked about checking your lawn for brown patch. You'll be able to spot dead brown spots correct with fertilization, proper watering practices. You could maybe use something like bonide infuse. That's a systemic disease control. And number three, make sure to pick okra and squash regularly from your garden. One fully ripe fruit can halt blooming for the entire plant. So keep that in mind. Coming up in a few minutes, my friend Walter Reeves joins us. We're going to have a conversation about insecticides, proper use, when to, when not to. Stay tuned. It's Green and Growing on WSB. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. 
Rolling right along on the show on a Saturday morning for you. About 75 degrees. It's going to heat up to the upper 80s today. So not only is it going to be a little warm, it's going to be a little thick, too. It's going to be a little humid. But hey, like Clint Waltz said, it's June in Georgia, folks. What can we expect? I'm glad to be uh, with you live this morning in studio. And this is a special treat for those of you that listen in the 7 o'clock hour because typically what I do at 6.30 every Saturday in the first hour of the show is host Walter Reeves. And we do a segment called Walter Wonders. And so we're going to be doing that uh, at this time, this Saturday. So for those of you that have missed him, check this out. Walter's Wondering. The definitive questions and answers from WSB's OG Garden Guru, Walter Reeves. So much fun to have Walter on at a little bit different time in the show. Hey, friend, you got to sleep in a little bit today. Hey, Ashley. <laughs> I love it. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Very, very good. So uh, for folks that maybe, you know, don't ever get to hear you because they wake up in the second hour of the show, uh, how you been? You been busy? You staying away I'm from COVID? Good. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, the thing I've been doing this uh, spring and early summer is smelling things. I had such good luck with uh, Jasmine and gardenias right now are smelling good. Oh, wow. My whole garden smells good because the gardenias are blooming right now. I love the gardenias and being able to float them. You know, if you want to enjoy that smell yeah. inside, cutting those blooms off and floating them in a shallow bowl of water. I love that. Pretty, so, pretty, pretty. Just girl. like old time's sake, I was actually going to pick a, a special caller for you and I to help and take his call <laughs> together. But unfortunately, Kenny had to drop off. Um, Kenny was okay. calling from like the old national area, but I still wanted to help him out, Walter. So the gist of what I can gather about what his call was about helping along tall tomato plants. So I'm not sure if maybe Kenny was kind of getting it, you know, caging or staking them up uh-huh. or something. Or is it possible when these tomato plants, we, we all know how tall they can get, you know, maybe five, six feet tall. Do you top them off? What's best for tomato production? <laughs> well, I do, frankly, I wrap it around. I bend it down and just wrap it around the cage and let it grow some more. I know some people have sort of contests with their neighbors, so they say, who can get the tallest tomato plant in the neighborhood? <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, the more leaves, the better. So I just wrap it around the cage. Um, <clears throat> one thing that he could do, frankly, is to stop fertilizing. And one of the things I see frequently is that tomato plants are really, really tall, haven't fertilized too much. They get a little bit too much miracle grow or 10, 10, 10, put to them, and they just take off. They don't have as many fruit. They don't have as many fruit over when they have that many, that much brine on it. So be careful about the fertilizer as well. And that fertilizer, you know, the regimen, whether we're doing miracle Grow or something like that, the height is due to that first number in the in the fertilizer compound, the nitrogen, right? That's accounting for the height? Yes. Yeah, another one is because it could be a non-determinate tomato. Tomato that is not, is not genetically predisposed to stop growing. Some tomatoes want to stop around three, three to four feet tall. Others want to stop around six or eight feet tall. And so if he has a non-determinate tomato, then he has one that wants to be eight feet tall. So that's something to look out for on the seed packet, folks, or maybe ask the nursery when you're picking up those tomato plants. Sure. That's going to make a difference if you get the non-determinate sure. or the determinate. That's right. Well, thank you, Walter. And I have another question for you, too. We're talking about insecticides today, and I've got a lot of questions. want to make sure we even need to use them, what cases, using them properly. Um, And Judy kind of kicked us off in the last hour 
I ended the six o'clock hour with her call about gall on her pecan trees. And she's seeing these protrusions, oh. these weird looking alien type things coming from the leaves. <laughs> and that is like aphids, is it not? And kind of them laying their eggs and doing all this crazy, sort of, crazy stuff. Sort of. it's, a, it's a mite. Okay. An aerophid mite. And it looked like aphids, but they're not aphids really. They're little mites that gall the surface of the pecan leaf. They like the leaf. Both of them look horrible. This is awful. Leaves are this malformed and twisted and bumpy and everything. <clears throat> but it's really worrisome to a country owner is they have this philosopher doll making insects on their leaves. But, you know, actually, this is one of those cases where it's not that bad. If you don't want to do anything you can, if you want to leave it alone, you can. If you want to spray with insecticide, I suppose you could. But hang on, get insecticide up in the tree. Hang on, get 40, 50 feet high in the tree. So if you want to spray a little bit as far as, as, far as, you, as you can reach with your sprayer, okay. But I don't think philosophy is one of the problems you really worry about much. They don't mean bad some years and not so bad other years. Just to be on the nature and how things work, natural predators and stuff like that. So I don't know that she has to do anything. Good. So it's, it's not uh, favorable that it's just going to become some mass infestation and take right. out the pecan tree. That's not likely. It's not going to kill the tree. Good, good. Love that. And so when you see leaf gall on other things, maybe shrubs like camellia and azalea and stuff, just removing those leaves is enough, just taking that hazard away from the plant? Yeah. Most gall insects depend on the plant for their own lives. So they don't want to kill that tomato. They don't want to kill the azalea. They don't want to kill the oak leaf. They want to keep the oak alive and the azalea alive so they can then make a little house and they gall on the leaf. And then they're happily protected from predators, and then they fall off and they you know, reproduce themselves. And that goes on year after year. They don't want to hurt the plants. So dolls, if you don't like them, just remove them, throw them in a bucket or dispose of them somehow. Get rid of them that way. So if we do our research and talk to other gardeners and maybe, you know, join Facebook groups where gardeners share ideas, there are a lot of times that we can avoid using chemicals, that we can avoid using insecticides. You know, you just have to really know what you got and then what to do about it. So I did want to talk to you, Walter. There are so many cases where we may not have to use insecticides, but when we do, you know, if it's just a pesky bug and infestation, something you've got each and every year on certain plants. Let's first talk about buying the right insecticide and knowing the difference first between like a contact insecticide and a systemic. What are we looking at there? How do those work differently? Well, the contact insecticide is they apply it, spray it on the bug and they, they die. And a lot of people see the insect just, you know, six legs up. <laughs> they spray it and say, I want him dead now. Stop moving dead. So the contact insecticides do that, but you have to be careful because contact insecticides can be a little more toxic than the systemic ones. The systemic ones, sort of as their name implies, are sucked up by the roots of the plant. They go up into the sap, and when a bug sucks the sap or eats the leaf of the plant, then they get killed. And it's typically a little bit slower than the contact insecticides, but sometimes it's a better way to do things because you're not hurting pollinators, you're not hurting honeybees, things like that who don't. And they don't suck the juice out of leaves, certainly. So when we're talking about something systemic, is that when we hear the term drench used? I mean, that's what yeah, you use usually. around the soil, right? Usually it's a drench, yes. So it's so, so about the roots. Okay, and contact insecticide, spraying it right on the bugs, right on the leaves. Um, are there better times of day to use those so that you're not hurting pollinators? 
Yeah, I think in the morning is better than the evening is better. Right at dusk and right at dawn. <clears throat> if I was going to choose, I would say uh, dawn, uh, dusk is in the evening because most pollinators are gone by then and the bed bugs, if you will, are still around. For some like Japanese beetles, Gosh, we haven't had a bad Japanese beetle here for a long time, but it used to be Japanese beetles would be very, very cold in the morning. So I was praying them in the morning. So mm. really the sun is up very high. Because kind of these beetles are so big as an insect, that they need to get warmed up until about 10 or 11 o'clock. But if you swear around 9 o'clock in the morning, you do a better job controlling them. <laughs> they're like slow moving. They're still kind of groggy, exactly. slow to wake they're up. real right? slow to wake up. <laughs> now, what are some bugs maybe that size that you're able to go up to your plant and just like flick them off? And you've said in the past, maybe flick them into a container of not necessarily beer, but something that's going to drown them. Yeah, soapy water. Yeah. Japanese beetle is my favorite because they are so slow in the morning. And if you want to, you know, give a kid a dollar for every pint of Japanese beetles they pick up and play at the spot, I used to earn money picking potato bugs off of potatoes in my dad's farm. But you can do that. <clears throat> pick them off because they're small, they don't stay, they don't hurt, they're just ugly, bugs, potato leaves. Some, plant, some bugs are big enough that you can flick them if you catch them, but uh, let's give an example. Bean beetles. Bean beetles are yellow, real, real bright yellow bugs. They're spiny looking. And they <clears throat> get on beans and uh, potatoes sometimes. But bean beetles, basically bean beetles, are really, really bright. And they can be flicked or squashed if you don't mind squashing them. And that's a good way to just see something and squash it. And so you don't have to spray insecticide at all. And uh, we're going to be on the lookout for our tomato plants. We're talking a lot about those. Tomato hornworm, that Alice in Wonderland, funky-looking, big, fat, green caterpillar-type thing. That's something that you can just, I mean, have garden gloves on, but you can physically <laughs> remove from the plant, right? Yeah, sure. Just take them off. Put them on the sidewalk so the birds can have something to eat. Yeah. All right, so not using chemicals if, if you don't need to. Now let's talk about, we've got a few minutes just to talk about some, quote, home remedies. And none of these are necessarily tested or approved, but just things you've heard over the generations. So I'll talk to you first, maybe making some kind of compound that involves like a dish detergent or a soap and, you know, having it in the spray bottle. How effective is that? Um, not very and dangerous besides. If you use a detergent, a detergent is something that's, Designed and made chemically in the lab to dissolve waxes on the sort of surface of a bug or the surface of a leaf, either one. <clears throat> so if you use Dawn detergent, every recipe that I've ever seen online says you use Dawn detergent. Dawn detergent is a miracle stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can very easily burn the leaves of your plants, trying to control the bugs of that plant. So I don't, you know, I really just try not to say anything about the. Online formulas and say don't use those. I got white. Actually, I got one that does not use insecticides at all, but it's still a proven way to kill bugs. Well, how's that? Use plants that attract beneficial insects. Oh. Beneficial insects are insects that kill the bugs you don't like. Nice. And <clears throat> just by putting just flowers, any kind of flower just about will attract beneficial insects. And put them in among your tomatoes and your squash and your other vegetables you have in the garden helps to bring in bugs that will kill the insects you don't like. And you don't have to spray anything. Just put flowers around your garden and bring in beneficial insects. Again, these garden groups, asking around, asking the folks at Pike Nursery, just so you kind of educate yourself on how to properly do that. Love that idea. One more thing. Uh, Beer. How effective is beer? (laughs) And who does that attract? (laughs) Slugs and snails. That is what works fine. (laughs) It may not be as 
They labeled usage of beer, but if you take beer and put it in a saucer and smash the saucer in the ground, just so the lip is right close to the edges of the soil. And during the night, the slugs and the snails say, ooh, boy, that smells good over there. They go and drown. They're probably good drown. So they'll run to that saucer before they get up in your hostas and start chewing leaves yeah, exactly. on things. Yeah, exactly. Nice. And then we've always got bug zappers, too. Are those still a thing? Man, I remember being a kid hearing Man, that thing no. go crazy at night. Like, I do not like bug zappers. Oh. They're they don't tell the difference between the crane flies, which are harmless, and mosquitoes, which you don't like, of course. Mm-hmm. I don't like bug zappers at all. They can kill some, a lot of bugs, but a lot of those bugs that they do kill are good bugs or neutral bugs that doesn't do anything bad to us. Yeah, and not to mention just the sound. And now, uh, something I mentioned earlier in the show, and I may not have had it exactly right, yellow cups, like I've seen this on some garden groups, using like a yellow plastic solo cup. What does that attract? What bugs are attracted to that yellow? Uh, White flies really are attracted to the color yellow. They're attracted to yellow flowers, and they're attracted to yellow solo cups. Another odd thing. And you can put sticky stuff on the outside of the solo cup. It could be cooking oil. It could be... Uh, SCP motor oil, the regular motor oil too. Just brush it on the outside of the yellow, <clears throat> yellow solo cup, and the bed bugs are changing the color of yellow. That's going to get stuck on it. Fascinating. See, that's quick and easy too. Well, hey, Walter, this has been a fun discussion. I love it. And I may uh, throw up some links to your website, to WalterReeves.com, about some of the things we've discussed and share that on the Green and Growing WSB Facebook page. That sounds good. Uh, I'm so glad you're up with us this morning. Have a great weekend, my friend. I'm planning on it. Thank you, Ashley. See you soon. I love it. And happy Father's Day in just a couple of weeks, too. That's going to come up pretty quickly. All right. Love having Walter back on the show. Now back to your calls in just a few minutes. Thanks for being here. You're listening to Green and Growing. I'm Ashley Frasca on WSB. An update on your weather forecast brought to you by Finley Roofing. Scattered showers and storms today, but there are periods of dry hours. Highs in the upper 80s. Same tomorrow. Partly cloudy skies, a little less chance of rain. And lows around 70. Partly cloudy skies on Monday as well. 404-872-0750. Up now, we're talking to Tom and Alpharetta. Hey, welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, good morning, Ashley. Walter's always said you can't grow peaches in Alpharetta, but I continue to try. <laughs> I uh, did not spray my tree this year, and I've got some nice-looking fruit on it, but the uh, mold is starting to hit some of it. Last year, just wiped the tree out. I wondered if there was anything at this juncture that I could put on that would stop the mold. Now, is it brown rot like it does? It looks moldy on the fruit? Uh, yes, it looks moldy on the fruit. Look, uh, like if you take a rotten lemon out of the out of the refrigerator, it's just mold all the way across. All That's the way around. it. Oh gosh, Tom, I'm so sorry. Right, brown rot, brown rot rather, caused by a fungus, and you see it on the fruit. It is very difficult to manage in Georgia without the use of fungicides. And home orchard sprays and following those regimens are so important. Um, removing all of the old fruit at the end of the season, proper pruning and all of that for airflow in the plant during the dormant season, all of that is going to cut back on the chance for brown rot infections the following year. As far as what you can do now, I would remove the affected fruit, which hopefully, fingers crossed for you, Tom, is not all of it. Um, but do check with the, your county agent for advice now on on proceeding and trying to get ahead of, you know, what what fruit is not affected yet. 
Um, so you're there in North Fulton County. 1-800-ASK-UGA-1 is the number you need to call. 1-800-ASK-UGA and the number one to talk to the uh, extension agent there in Fulton County because I don't want to guide you wrong. Home orchards are not uh, my area of expertise, so I don't want to tell you spraying at the wrong time. But once you get that guide from them, they'll print it off and, and share it with you, or it's on the website as well when you go to extension.uga.edu. Uh, the Home Orchard Spray Guide is there, and it's so key, folks, to following and making sure you do everything at the right times as the leaves are you know, coming on uh, on the trees in the spring and not disrupting the pollinators. So there's a window of time when you really shouldn't spray because you need those bees and things coming to the flowers. So don't want to guide you wrong, Tom. Check in with the extension agent, and hopefully there is still... Something you can do to get ahead of it. And uh, I commend you. Yes, I commend you. You're going to keep trying. Don't give up. You want peaches. I think it can happen for you. 404-872-0750. Talking to Dexter and Conyers coming up about removing trees. Ted and Covington. Maybe too much water. We've had a lot of rain lately. We'll see how that's impacting your landscape. You're listening to WSB. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.